Well, you guys probably know that uh, during the lesson, text your questions into that number, and we, we can't answer them all, but we try to answer as many as we reasonably can. We are in a series that's last, going to last for four sessions. This is the third of four sessions, where we're looking at just some of the visions in the book of Daniel. One of the reasons I really like doing this is obviously... Uh, the visions are just fascinating, and the apocalyptic literature, the apocalyptic visions and the symbology are, are fascinating. But what you get to see is you get to see the thread that runs all through history and all through the Bible. Basically, you see God predicting what he will do. You see it coming to pass in history, and then we take a forward look. And so you tend to see God's larger plan, and I think that helps anchor our faith, not just in stories or events, but in God's complete redemptive plan. The second reason, and this is just something I'm really passionate about, is I don't want you to read any of the stories in the Bible as once upon a time fairy tales. I'd like for you to see how these stories in the Bible, these events in the Bible, are set in real history of the time. And so I'm going to go ahead and give you a non-apology apology that this lesson has a lot of history. The reason it has a lot of history is I want you to see that God is using real historical people, real historical events, and weaving them into this plan. Why is that important? Well, first, it's important for the veracity of the Bible. It's not uh, like some other religious documents or other mythical documents. If you read some of the, uh, the other literature that comes out in this era, some of the Babylonian and Assyrian creation epics and things like that, they read like myths because they are myths. And some would say, well, the stories in the Bible are also mythical. But that's where I want to challenge that, and I want us to begin to see that the things that are happening in the Bible are anchored in history. True, there's something bigger going on than just history, but they're anchored in history. And I think it speaks to the veracity of the Bible that it puts itself out there to be tested historically. The second thing is this. If our faith is built on a fairy tale, or in our minds a kind of a once upon a time, then you go out on Monday morning to work or you encounter Thursday afternoon the things in your life. It's very hard to connect a God of mythology with a life of reality. And so grounding the Bible in the real person of Jesus, in the real events of history, gives you confidence in your faith that God has worked in times exactly like this. God has worked in times more difficult than this. God is not a God far away, and when I die, I get to go be with him, and, and right now I'm on my own. This is the God that is working in your and my life, just like that he was working in Daniel's life. So I think it's important for a couple of reasons to do that. Okay, bad sign. Already started preaching, haven't even got into the lesson. Not a good sign for this. Seriously, let's start with some history. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. This is one of my favorite stories. This is just so literally off the wall. But, yeah, you, some of you got that already. It's like, uh, that was clever, Terry. Not really. But let's talk history a little bit. I want to take you back to the Babylonian Empire. And by the way, all of the photos that you are seeing tonight are from the British Museum or the National Gallery in London. So I really was doing research. I'm just telling you, it was a legitimate trip. So, Babylonian Empire. 
605 BC, you see King Nebuchadnezzar turns the Babylonian Empire, he begins to defeat their enemies, and this is a map, the green areas there are the extent of the Babylonian Empire largely due to Nebuchadnezzar. In 605, we talked about how something significant for our story happens then, because in 605, he basically invades Judea, and he takes Daniel, along with a number of other young men, as hostages back to Babylon and they become impressed into the civil service. They go through a three-year college course, basically, and they're going to become civil servants administering this Babylonian empire. Well, the story of the book of Daniel starts at that time in 605 BC, and it's going to end about the same time as the end of the Babylonian empire. So what basically happens with the Babylonians is God uses them to bring Israel into exile. Nebuchadnezzar will, a few years later, in 586, so I think 605, then a little bit later, 586, he'll destroy Jerusalem. And he'll take many of the Jews into exile, take them into Babylon, into other areas. But by the end of the Babylonian era, and this is the era, that's the first king and the last king, the Jews will basically be turned around. They're going to be in exile for 70 years, but then they're going to be brought back. So what God is saying to the Jews he's going to do in prophecy is going to play itself out literally in the Babylonian Empire. The first king of Babylon of significance for us is Nebuchadnezzar, and the last king is a guy named Nabonidus. You're going to see this name, Belshazzar, in the text. Belshazzar was his son, and the crown prince. What happened between 605 and 539 is you began to see weaker and weaker kings of Babylon. You began to see the empire get weaker and weaker. And by the time you get to Nabonidus, he's basically not even running the empire. He's off just partying constantly. And his son, who becomes the crown prince or the regent in one of the ancient documents, he's called the co-regent, with him is really running the government in Babylon. And so, historically, you'll see Nabonidus is the last king, but in actuality, you'll see Belshazzar actually running things. By the way, total side note, for a long time, scholars thought that Daniel was wrong because it talks about Belshazzar running things, and there was no historical evidence of that. And they go, well, obviously Daniel is a book that's made up because Nabonidus was the last king. And then, not that long ago, Voila, something gets dug up, and sure enough, Daniel was right. Belshazzar was indeed running things at that time. So that's who we're going to see. Secondly, I want to talk to you about the names there, by the way. That little guy in the bottom right is one of the Babylonian gods, and his name is Nabu, and you will see his name in those names, Nabonidus, N-A-B-O, Nebuchadnezzar. They basically carry the name of some of their gods, they also had a god named Baal, or Bel in the Babylonian language, and so Belshazzar is named after one of their gods. You see this a lot. The Babylonians were actually very religious people. Don't, don't read religious as in they're really nice people. They were not. Don't read religious as in they went to church a lot. They didn't. Read religion in the sense that they had a lot of gods that they thought controlled their destiny. 
That's particularly interesting for us because you tend to think that, okay, here are God's people, Daniel, he worships God, he's religious, and here are all these godless, non-religious, bad people in the world. That's not exactly the way it works. It's actually a little cooler than that. Babylonians, very religious. They just worshiped a whole bunch of gods that weren't really gods. And so part of what's going on here is God is going to work through real physical events to bring the downfall of Babylon, but he's also on a spiritual level confronting their gods that they're relying on and saying, well, let's just see who's really controlling your destiny. Nebuchadnezzar thought Nabu controlled his destiny. At the end of the day, you realize your gods aren't really the ones controlling your destiny. So God's working on more than one level at a time. So, religious people, you're going to see what's happening here during the time period of the Babylonian Empire. It's almost like they rise up out of nowhere and go away to nowhere only to serve God's purposes. And from a, and from a spiritual point of view, that's exactly right. The last couple of visions we talked about with Daniel, one of them happened, the vision about the statue in 603 B.C., and then the vision that he had of the four beasts happened 50 years later, 553. So during the lifetime of this young man, who's now, by the time we get to our story, a very old man, he's being hearing visions from God. Well, this vision, we know what the interpretation of it is, and we've seen it happen in history. That the four parts of the statue of the four different beasts represent four great kingdoms. Babylon, they're the dates that we're interested in in the Babylonian Empire. Persian Empire, Greeks, Alexander the Great, and then finally Rome. And so God is forecasting how he's going to work geopolitical events, and then we're going to, he's going to overlay on that the spiritual things he's doing. Clearly, the end result of this geopolitical process is the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. In other words, the world is going to be successively governed by bigger and bigger empires until you get to the Roman Empire, and they absolutely dominate the world. That's not so good if you're living in the Roman Empire. It's really good if you want to bring the Messiah into being because the whole world speaks Greek, the roads are great, the Internet's up and running, you know, you can do emails, whatever, not really, but the point is their communication is great, and so God is orchestrating geopolitics to bring the Messiah into being. But those are the last couple of visions that we looked at. What we're going to home in on in this vision is what, how God is going to bring about the change from the Babylonian to the Persian Empire, and it has some spiritual significance to it. So, here is the time period in uh, 539, this is what the world looked like. Basically, in, uh, I'll give you just a little bit of history of who's doing what to whom here. In uh, 559 BC, the Medes are overlords of the Persians. Persians think Iranians, Medes think they're gone. They're not here. And so they're, they're left history. And so at that time period, they're in charge. But then a guy named Cyrus, you're going to read a lot about Cyrus, the Persian. He comes to power. He's really smart, and he begins to take most of the GDP of the Persians and puts it into defense spending. And so he builds up his army, 
And by the time of 550, he actually conquers the Medes and makes them the ones that are subservient. And so when you read the Medo-Persian Empire, or the Median Persian Empire, these are really two nations, one of which is governing the other. And so what Cyrus did is he conquered them in some battles and demanded their allegiance. So now they team up together under Cyrus, the Persians' rule, and they decide that Cyrus is going to basically lead them, and they go after the Babylonians. And that's exactly what happens. He rebels, and he attacks the city of Babylon, and in 539 is when our story is going to happen. But I want to go ahead and give you the history of what happens here. So Cyrus brings this big army. He begins to defeat the Babylonians because they're just not well-led anymore. I mean, while these battles are going on, Nabonidus is still partying. Belshazzar's having a big old feast. There's no effective leadership. And so the, the Babylonian armies are getting defeated. In fact, Cyrus, at the head of a Persian and Median army, show up at Babylon. Well, Belshazzar's inside thinking, you know, nobody's ever conquered ba- uh, Babylon, the city. I mean, it's got massive walls. Literally, the river Euphrates ran through the city, so you're not going to make them thirsty. I mean, they've got water, they've got food stocked up, they've got huge high walls. There is no way. But they were so lax and so ineffective. Cyrus decides, you know, what would really be an easy way to get inside this city if there wasn't a river there. He puts his men to work, and he begins digging little canals off the river to just start siphoning the flow off. And he just works at it and works at it till the river going through Babylon dries up. And while they're inside partying, he and his army walk in, you know, right in the dry riverbed. And it was not bloodless, but it was total surprise. I mean, I don't know how you notice. Hey, anybody notice the river's getting, you know, a little shallower and shallower? But they don't even notice. They're totally surprised. They go in, they kill some of the soldiers, kill Belshazzar, and they take over just like that. And so it's one of the great conquests of history because, first of all, the Babylonians become so inept and Cyrus is so smart. So that's what happened. He diverted the Euphrates River and in 539, in a surprise move, he conquers the city of Babylon. This story is in the book of Daniel. I'm about to tell you this story in Daniel chapter 5, but I want you to know this story also is corroborated I mean, not with all the exact same details, but the basic plan of this, that Cyrus drained the river, walked in, surprise attack, in uh, some contemporaries. Xenophon is a Greek writer who wrote about Cyrus. Herodotus, you may have heard of him. He's like really famous Greek historian. And he wrote about this exact same era. Then, of course, you have the book of Daniel writing about this exact uh, same era. And then I wanted to show you Uh, excuse me, that's my fault, a couple of other contemporary things. This is in the British Museum. It's a small cylinder. It's about 10 inches long. It's about 4 inches wide, so it's really small. And that is writing on there, and it's called cuneiform writing. And it's basically just pitting this clay. This is made of clay. Actually, it's got a clay outside on it. And when it was soft, they would make these impressions, and this is called cuneiform writing. 
But when you interpret it, what it is, is it's right from the time period that we're talking about of when Cyrus did this. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And the reason it's called the Cyrus Cylinder is it records the things that Cyrus the Persian king did. And this is one of the things that Cyrus the Persian king did. So it's really interesting to see all these external things corroborating what the Bible is saying. Another one, uh, also in the British Museum, is called the Nabonidus Chronicle. Nabonidus, remember that last king who was off playing while his kingdom was being overcome? This is called the Nabonidus Chronicle. Again, it's also in cuneiform, which looks like chicken scratching. But basically, it's also a record of what happened during this time period. So I want you to see this, what's happening in God's prophecy is happening geopolitically, and it's recorded outside the Bible. I mean, this is not just a biblical story that's happening here. So, Nabonidus Chronicle, the Cyrus Cylinder, the Greek historians, the book of Daniel, all talking about this same time frame. So Cyrus, we'll give you a little bit more of his story, and then we'll go to the vision. So Cyrus, after 539, he had a different philosophy of governing. The Babylonians governed by taking people hostage and then saying, you pay your taxes or else. And if that didn't work, which it didn't with Israel, they went in and said, fine, we'll destroy your capital city, and we're going to take all your people, and we're going to relocate them because we're just not going to have any more rebellions. So they were moving people around. And in fact, by the way, the reason that there are so many Jews in Asia and Europe, think Russia, think Poland, etc., ultimately traces itself back to this time period when the Babylonians scattered them. There were other things that happened in history, but this is when the Jewish people really got scattered through the world and never fully all came back together. Cyrus the Persian had a different philosophy about that. He said, I think people will behave better if I give them religious autonomy. I mean, he was still absolutely adamant about getting his taxes. He would brutally destroy anybody that didn't or pay the taxes or tried to rebel, but he thought that it would be easier to govern if you let the people keep their own religion and pretty much just don't oppress them, uh, economically oppress them, but not religiously oppressing them. So one of the things that he did was he, when he got in charge, he looked around, there's all these Jewish exiles, and he said, you guys can go home if you want to. And in fact, I'll even give you a little money to go build your temple. Well, that's a smart move on Cyrus's part. Instead of just dominating these people, he's going to be a benevolent ruler. Now, he's still going to expect uh, money and so forth, but he thinks he'll get it more willingly. And so, historically, you see Cyrus letting a lot of different people go back, and one of them is the Jews. Well, that's significant to us because God prophesied that. If you think about the prophet Jeremiah, who's prophesying about the time Nebuchadnezzar comes to destroy Jerusalem, one of the prophecies is, you will be punished by the, the hand that I will send, but I will bring you back after 70 years. And sure enough, not that Cyrus had read that prophecy, not that Cyrus believed in God, but Cyrus effectively let those people go back because that was his ruling philosophy. So you see the history matching up with God's prophecy. And there's some really interesting implications to that, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But one thing I want to show you, this is out of the Old Testament. 
2 Chronicles 36, it's recounting this historical event. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's 538, that's right after he's destroyed the Babylonians, his first year of rule was 538. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, did Cyrus know he was fulfilling the word of the Lord? No. But the biblical writers say, we know what's really going on here. We know what's driving the geopolitics of this. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. And this is what he wrote. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Don't read into that. He actually believes in God. It's just a really good PR move. Think his PR firm wrote this. He said, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. Any of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and you may go back home and I'm going to give you some money to build your temple. It's not because he believed that God was the real God. He had his own gods, but he thought this was really good PR. But it's really interesting how the, the history and the prophecy dovetail. They come together. Make sense? Let me stop there because I want to dive into the vision in a minute, but I think it's important to get the history of what's happening so that now when you get this vision of Daniel, you realize this is not made up. This is actually happening in this stretch of history to all these different players, some of whom know they're serving God, some of them don't know that they're serving God. Question? Is the scattering that you're talking about the same one that's known as the diaspora? Yeah, good question. Uh, the diaspora, which is a word that means dispersion, uh, there were actually several of those. But yes, this is the first of those. There were other times when the Jews became really troublesome to the governments, and the governments scattered them around, but this was the first time that they were scattered and they never completely came back together. When you see this language in prophecy, this is off the subject, but it's really, really interesting. So as you're reading Old Testament prophecy tonight, which I'm sure you do routinely, if you see these statements in the Old Testament prophets about, I will bring my people back together, and a lot of them are messianic prophecies, meaning they're prophecies about Jesus, but they actually came true twice. Once is, you were physically scattered in a diaspora, a dispersion, and I physically brought you back by means of Cyrus. And that is a little dress rehearsal for what I'm going to do on a cosmic scale with Jesus. I'm going to bring everybody spiritually back into the family. So you see the historical things happening as little rehearsals for the huge spiritual thing happening. But yes, this is the first of the great diasporas. Is there any significance to the size and shape of the cuneiform pieces? Any significance to the size and the shape of the cuneiform pieces? Not necessarily. The cylinder was popular for a while. There are actually more cylinders than that. But if you ask me, Terry, who thought cylinder was a good idea? You know, don't know. It seems to have been fashionable. For most of history, you have what are called, this is a German word, a stele, S-T-E-L-E. And a stele is, think gravestone, I know that's not pleasant, but think just a big old slab of stone and you just write on it. You know, put some pictures, but you basically write on it. Uh, the cylinder thing seems to have been a little bit of a fad there, but I don't know why they like cylinders. Maybe it fit in your backpack better, or, so I don't know. Good question. 
Um, during the Israelites' exile, were there still leaders or kings of the Israelite people? During the Israelite exile, so think from 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, took tons of Jews out of the area, till 538, when Cyrus said, you guys can go back if you want to. There, there was a break in the line of kings. In other words, the Jews didn't really rule themselves. They had Babylonian governors, they were being punished, so they didn't really have their own kings. But when they got ready to come back, they still knew who was in the lineage, right, of kings. And so when you go to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, they cover the time period of history from here, 538, for about the next hundred years as the Jews begin coming back. To Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild the walls. Think Nehemiah rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. Think rebuilding the temple. Not so nice, but you know, getting a temple where they could worship. Think Ezra doing that. And so that story tells you about a guy who led them back, and his name was Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel becomes the governor leader of the Jews as they are allowed to come back, and he's also in the line of Jesus. So there's a break in the kingship, but not a break in the lineage, if you know what I mean. They didn't have a king, but they knew who still is descended from David. Good question. Okay, well, let's jump into this vision, and it's happening right in this time period. In fact, this specific vision is happening in 539 B.C. Belshazzar's having a big old party in Babylon. Right outside the gate, Cyrus and his boys are all camped out there in their pickup trucks with their shotguns, can't get inside Babylon. Belshazzar's like, no problem. So our scene opens in Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, not his father, but a king before him, remember, 605, 539, so almost 70 years before. Nebuchadnezzar, when he destroyed Jerusalem, he took all the gold cups, took all the good stuff, brought it back, stuck it in there in the china cabinet. And so Belshazzar says, get in the china cabinet. I'm feeling pretty good. Let's just have our wine out of some conquered people's stuff, right? So he says, go get it, and we'll drink out of that. And so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So basically, let me set this up. Historically, he's in there having a party while his doom is waiting right outside the walls, and he does not know it. Spiritually, he takes God's cup out of the temple that his great-great-grandfather, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, has destroyed. And as he's drinking out of that cup, he's praising all of these idols and says, all of them have made me great and made me powerful, and I am the king of kings. Okay, that's like trash-talking the God of the universe, and it is not a good idea. So that's what's going on at, at this time. So then this picture, by the way, is a Rembrandt, and it's in the National Gallery in London. But suddenly, 
the fingers of a human hand. By the way, have you guys, totally off the subject, but there is no way Belshazzar is dressed like a guy who lived in 16th century Europe, right? I don't know why these painters painted everybody in the clothing of their day. Anyway, Belshazzar sees a human hand appeared out of nowhere and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. That's scared. I don't know when's the last time you were so scared. Your face turned pale, your knees knocked together, and your legs gave way. For me, it was fifth grade, big test. I had not studied. I was scared to death. Well, this is Belshazzar. He sees, and I would feel pretty weird too if you see a disembodied hand writing on the wall. So what does he do? He basically says he's going to call all of his wise men to him. He called for the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners to be brought and said to all these wise men of Babylon, now think about this. I want you to watch what's happening because there's a great lesson. God is always doing more than one thing at once. On the one hand, you've got a guy who's scared to death and he needs some smart guys to figure out, what does that mean? I have a bad feeling it's not good. Right? On the other hand, think about what he's relying on. He's relying on the gods and the idols of wood and stone. He's going to rely on human wisdom to figure this thing out. And he's going to find out that none of those things are going to work for him. So, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, huge honor, have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Well, why is he the third highest? Nabonidus, his dad, is king. He is Belshazzar, the guy who's actually running things, so he's second. So this person would be third next to Belshazzar. He's a big deal. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. Well, the writing is Aramaic. It looks like Hebrew writing. We can understand what the writing is. The problem was they had no idea what is this disembodied hand, why is this happening, and what does that mean that's up there? Well, he begins to get in a dither. So the queen mother comes in and says, Belshazzar, stop your knees from knocking together. I remember back in the day there used to be a Jewish guy that Nebuchadnezzar really liked. His name was Daniel, and he was one of those Jewish exiles. If he's still around, you should call him. He has a reputation for being able to figure these things out. So they go find Daniel. He's still alive. Now think of Daniel. He's been there for 70 years. He was a young man when he came, so he's probably 90 years old or so. So Daniel comes in, and Belshazzar says to him, the king said to Daniel, I'm not going to put this up here, but here's what he said. Are you that Daniel, the one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar brought from Judah? I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and wisdom are found in you. This is like a great introduction. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me, and they cannot read the interpretation of this. But I have heard that you can give interpretations, and if you can... I will clothe you in purple, put a chain of gold around your neck, and make you the third ruler in the kingdom. So what are you thinking that Daniel does here? 
Daniel has reached that age that I cannot wait to get to, where he just doesn't care what you think, right? I cannot wait to get to that point where you go, hey, he's earned it. He's crusty. He's an old codger. You got to let him say what he wants to say. Well, that's what Daniel does. I had to make this small because there's a lot here, but I want you to hear the whole thing. He does a brilliant job of giving a 70-year history here. Then Daniel answered the king, you can keep your stuff and you can give your rewards to somebody else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and I will tell you what it means. But first, since I'm an old guy, you're going to have to listen to a little lecture. He says, O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar, not again, not his father, but basically that's how they talked about a king that came before you. And so remember, this is about 70 years ago. He said, the God, the most high God, gave your father sovereignty and greatness and glory. Because of the high position he gave him, all the people and nation and men of every language dreaded and feared him, unlike you, Belshazzar, who happens to have an enemy army outside your walls. This is just so in your face. I want you to see how insulting this is. The key, those that King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. In other words, he was truly a powerful king. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, and I didn't tell you this story, but read it in the book of Daniel. As Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm awesome and I don't need anything. And God said, really? Watch this. And this is what happened. He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven mad away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. He just kind of went crazy until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdom of men and sets them over anyone he wishes. And sure enough, when he comes back to his senses, he goes, Daniel, your God is God. I'm not. I mean, so he kind of comes back to his senses. He said, but you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself even though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and wives and concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which can't see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and everything about you. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is what the inscription says. Many, many tekel huparsim. It's just a little Aramaic phrase, which his enchanters should have known, but they have no idea what it means. And he said, this is what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And what it literally means is numbered, numbered, weighed and divided and so he said your days are numbered you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting and now your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians and so that's Daniel's interpretation then at Belshazzar's command Daniel was clothed in purple a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom that very night Belshazzar king of the Babylonians was killed and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. 
So the reason I want to give you a lot of history around this is it's easy to see this as, okay, that's one of those, you know, what if kind of stories. The problem is everything about this story is confirmed in other records. In other words, all the history is right. That's exactly what happened to Belshazzar. He was having a big feast when Cyrus steals in, Cyrus puts him to death and takes over the kingdom. It happened just when God said it would. It happened just the way God said it would. And Cyrus does exactly what God prophesied would happen with the Jews. And so I wanted you to see this vision set in that historical perspective. So what are some lessons? I want to talk to you just a little bit about a couple of lessons out of this. I want to draw some conclusions from the history and from this thing. By the way, uh, you probably already figured this out, but you know that saying that we use today, you know, I can read the writing on the wall, or can you read the writing on the wall? In other words, can you not understand what's obvious to everybody else, right? I mean, that's how it's come to us. This is where it comes from. It comes from this biblical story. Most of the people that use it have no idea that comes from the Bible. It comes from an actual historical event. It comes from the story of Daniel in 539 B.C. In fact, a lot of the sayings that we say today come from biblical events. It's just encoded into our culture, deeply encoded. I don't know if it will continue to be encoded in our culture, but it's encoded into our culture. Well, a couple of lessons out of this. The first is even the kings of Babylon serve God's purposes. Nebuchadnezzar was conquering because he thought he was just going to become the greatest guy in history. He wasn't conquering because he thought he was doing God's will. He was worshiping a bunch of other gods. That happens today, too. Why is that important? Is even the evil people in the world end up serving God's purposes. Let me give you an example from the book of Habakkuk. You're like, Habakkuk? How did he get in this story? Okay, Habakkuk is a minor prophet. He's in the Old Testament. He's a minor prophet because he never had a movie made out of him and he never had a book at Barnes & Noble. But he did write this short little prophecy. So when is Habakkuk living? Habakkuk is living right before 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar rolls in. And that's what I want to talk about. Even Nebuchadnezzar is serving God's purpose even though he doesn't realize it. Here's a conversation between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long will I cry for help? This is the book of Habakkuk. And you will not hear. I'm crying to you. There's violence all around. There's injustice all around me here in Judea. People are not serving God. They're not doing the right thing. Why do you make me look at this? Why do you not bring justice here? Why do you not punish the people that are throwing innocent people out of their homes, that are killing people and taking their stuff? It's like, Lord, why are you not punishing these people? God says, great question, Habakkuk. He says, look among the nations and wonder and be astounded. I am about to do something that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you. He says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are Babylonians. I, the word literally is Chaldeans, but most of your uh, Bibles will translate it Babylonian. Anytime you see Chaldean, Chaldean, Chaldeans, they're Babylonians. A bitter and hasty nation, a bunch of really bad guys. He says, and they're going to come rolling in here, and they are going to punish the people who are in power who are not doing good things. And back it goes, oh, wait a minute. Maybe not, all right? Maybe not the Babylonians. So, but think about what's happening here. Think about what the Bible's saying, is that I told you, Israel, for a couple hundred years, that if you don't obey, if you're not faithful to the covenant, there will be consequences. 
Habakkuk says, these people are not being faithful to the covenant. This is, this is terrible injustice. What are you going to do? He said, yeah, I got this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't know who I am, but boy, he's a really good general, and he's a total egomaniac, right? He's going to come rolling in here with some tanks and some airplanes pretty soon, and he is going to do what I told you was going to happen. So my point is, even the evil people in the world, even the ambitious people in the world, are serving God's purposes, whether they realize it or not. And then let's fast forward to 539 with Belshazzar. Even the kings of Babylon face God's justice. In other words, they served God's purpose without knowing it, and they were still held accountable for what they did as well. And so you see God working human will, even evil will, into his plan and still holding those people accountable for what they did. This is essentially what's happening in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, let's turn our gaze forward in time now, from backward. In the book of Revelation, the Antichrist and the oppressive, unjust, evil forces of that time in the future are referred to as Babylon the Great. Now, does that mean there's going to be a kingdom named Babylon in the future? I don't think so, but it's really pretty clear. Like, remember Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, yeah. We know historically who he was. We know how evil he was. We know he totally tried to destroy God's people. He destroyed the temple. He was a bad guy. He thought he was all uh, a god himself. He set himself against God. He persecuted God. People God goes, excellent, you're good students. That's what's going to happen in the tribulation. And so the guy who's going to be doing it then, he's just like Babylon. He said, in fact, that's why Babylon happened, so that I can tell you what's going to happen in the future. And so you see God basically using this historical story to say, what I did there, I'm going to do again. So it's going to seem like he's evil. It's going to seem like he's overwhelmingly powerful. But I just want you to know, I was really pulling the strings here and I'm really pulling the strings there. Make sense? Why is that important? Because if even the evil things in our lives, if even the difficulties that Satan throws against us, those things end up serving God's purpose. That's why in the New Testament, you read so much about there's suffering in this world. Jesus said, you are going to have trials in this world, but rejoice, I have overcome the world. Well, that's an interesting thing to say. He could have said, you used to have trials in this world, but rejoice. It's prosperity gospel now. No more hard times for anybody. That's not what he says. He's more realistic. He said, no, Satan's still here, and Satan's going to throw things into your life. You're going to have relational pain. You're going to have bankruptcies. You're going to have cancer. You're going to have all kinds of things. But here's the deal. He said, now I'm going to incorporate that suffering and that difficulty and I'm going to turn it from the purpose that Satan intended, which is crush you. What was Nebuchadnezzar's purpose? Crush these people. Seventy years later, where's Nebuchadnezzar? Dead. Where are the Jews? Back in Jerusalem. You see what I'm saying? Is God says, Satan's going to throw all these difficulties in your life, and what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to incorporate them into making you more faithful, stronger, and more assured of eternal life. That's God's, that's God's pattern. It's his MO in history. It's his MO in, in your and my life. He's going to take the things that are meant for evil. He's going to use them for ultimate good. 
That's why Romans 8.28 says, in all circumstances, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What's he saying? He's not saying, in every circumstance, it'll work out the way you want. He just said, all the Nebuchadnezzars of the world, all the Nebuchadnezzars of your life, they're actually dancing to my tune. And although they meant it for evil, I will use it for good in your life. And then justice comes to them as well. So you see in Revelation what happens to Babylon the Great. What happens to the Antichrist? What happens to Satan? What happens to all the difficulties in your life? There'll come a day when you stand alive forever in heaven and they are gone. They are destroyed. They are overcome by God. That's what happened in this little 70-year window of history. That's why this happened. That's what Daniel is talking about. So that you and I learn that lesson increases our faith and helps us walk through our lives with this confidence behind us. That's why God gives prophesies. That's why God orchestrates history, is to strengthen us so that we can be faithful walking forward. And the second thing is this. Man-made idols will always fail us in the end. I mean, think about Belshazzar is the perfect example. He had the most powerful city in the world. He had the highest walls in the world. had the best artillery in the world. He had the best gods in the world. I mean, if people judged your gods by how successful you were, and so basically a lot of people in the ancient world adopted the Babylonian gods after Nebuchadnezzar. They said, hey, their gods must be real. Their gods must be powerful. I'm going to start worshiping their gods. Maybe he'll do some good for me too. And so he was relying on the gods who had a good track record, right? Babylonian Empire, we're the kings. Our gods are better than your gods. Pretty good track record. He's relying on his defenses. He's relying on his wise men. The problem is all those things are man-made, and everything man-made is going to fail us in the end. Everything man-made is going to come to some kind of destruction. And the challenge I'd have for you is what are you relying on to protect you? We sometimes do the modern equivalent of Belshazzar. I don't know about you, but when you get your statement from your 401k, didn't you just open it up this month and look at it and go, Oh, wow, I am set for life. Me neither. But my point is, we sometimes are tempted to grab those things, right? Okay, well, I got this, and I got this, and I got that, and I got good insurance, and I've got that. Those are not unwise things to do, but at some point, we make things into idols, and we put our trust in them to protect us. One of the other smaller, but one of the powerful lessons of this is, at the end, those will always fail us. All the things that look like they ought to protect you won't protect you. And the things that you most think are powerless in this world will. The lamb that was slain, the Messiah that was crucified and rose again, the God who literally saw his people destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and in the end, Nebuchadnezzar serves his purpose. That's why in the New Testament, Paul talks about his faith, and he says, when I have trials, I rejoice. Remember James, rejoice when you have trials. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am very strong. Because God turns things upside down. And so one of the challenges I take out of this is I can see that history. I can see God working. I can see historically that evil doesn't really rule. God does. Now as I turn around and face my day-to-day -day life, will I remember that? And will I put my faith in God? Will I put my trust in him in the little things if he can be trusted with the great things in history and the great things in the future?
So that's one of the beauties of this prophecy of Daniel. That's, in my view, why these prophecies are happening. These things are happening in large part to build your and my faith. By anchoring it in history, by prophesying about what's going to happen, we can literally live out this kind of faith in the midst of our difficulties. Okay? So, I want you to take the history lesson, use that at parties to impress your friends, but I want you to really think about these stories, these events in real history happen so that you're in my faith might grow. And we would say, what an awesome God we serve. And so I want you to be confident this week. Because when you come back next week, we have probably the most controversial, the most contorted prophecy in all of the Bible. It's Daniel's famous prophecy of the 70 weeks. And if we understand it right, we should know when the world is going to end. So that's next week. See you guys then. <laughs>